title of my sermon is Behold the Lamb of God. The big idea, Behold the One. And Dave, oh, the songs were perfect, brother. Thank you. Thanks for leading us. Thank you, choir. Behold the One who is most worthy and gives the Spirit. Who is that? Who is the One who is most worthy and gives the Spirit? It's Christ. It's Jesus. You know, it matters, and I think everyone at Kelty's would agree with this statement, I hope, it matters what we believe about Jesus. Is true? Oh my goodness, it matters. It matters what we believe about Jesus. Now, in the early 2000s, I think it was 2003, R.C. Sproul, who has gone to be with the Lord, wrote a book titled Defending Your Faith. It's a book on apologetics. And early on in the book, he talks about the importance of propositional truths or propositions in Christianity. What's a proposition? These are simply statements of truth, assertions. For example, Jesus is God. That's a proposition. Jesus is the Messiah, the promised king. Again, that is a proposition. These propositions represent the content of our faith. Again, it matters what we believe about Jesus. Sproul writes early on in his book, He says, sadly, sadly, there is a movement in theology today that says faith has nothing to do with propositions, that the Bible is simply a book that bears witness to relationships. It's relationships that count, not propositions. These are the folks who argue that we don't need doctrine. Doctrine doesn't matter. All we need is a relationship with Jesus. Now listen, (laughs) a relationship with Jesus is massively important, amen? But doesn't it matter what we believe about Jesus? If you claim to have a relationship with Jesus, I would say, well, what do you believe about the Jesus you claim to have a relationship with? Maybe you've heard the creed. (laughs) No creed but Christ. Really? What do you know about Jesus, this Jesus that you claim to have a relationship with? For example, if you don't believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, then your faith is in a corpse. Does that matter? Oh, it matters greatly, friend. Our passage today, the reason I want to start this way is our passage today is full. It is full of wonderful Christian doctrine, theological propositions, statements of truth that speak to the identity of Jesus. He's the Lamb of God. That's how our passage begins. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it ends with another proposition. He's the Son of God. These two titles speak to both his identity as king and God. They speak to his sacrificial mission, the reason he came, namely, to give his life for sinners. You see, it matters what we believe about Jesus. Propositions must take priority in the church. Now, notice how our passage is framed. This is really cool. Verse 29, Jesus is the Lamb of God. Verse 34, he's declared to be the Son of God. So, That's how our passage is framed. It begins with Jesus is the Lamb of God, and it concludes with this declaration that he's the Son of God. The one who came to die 
to give his life is the Son of God, the promised King and God in the flesh. Wow. The God King came to lay his life down. Is there anything more humbling than that? I don't think so. You know, it's like a star athlete serving Thanksgiving dinner at the Salvation Army. I watched a documentary recently, and it was on a a famous quarterback, a well-known NFL quarterback, and every time during the holidays, he brings his family to homeless shelters, places like the Salvation Army, to serve, to serve the residents. And there was this kid, and he was like, and, and you could tell the kid was a follower of this team. It was his hometown. He's like, wait, 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 wait. Like, you're, you're not so-and-so, are you? He's like, yeah, I am. What? He couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe it. It's humbling, right, for a multi-millionaire to leave his cushy lifestyle to serve the poor and struggling. It, it's unexpected. That's why the kid couldn't believe it. He didn't expect that. Why are you here with us? That's the effect our passage should have on us. Do you get it? That's the effect this text should have on us. It's that feeling of incredulity that the incarnation is meant to elicit. Surely not. Wait, wait, wait. You're telling me that the Lamb of God who laid down his life for sinners is the Son of God, the eternal Son of God? He died for us? Come on. It's true. Praise God, it's true. (laughs) I want you to notice something in our passage. There's an emphasis on sight and witness and testimony in our passage. This is intentional, and it's hugely significant. Now, just listen to this. Pay attention. Verse 29, he saw Jesus. He what? He saw. Okay, that's, that's really important. He didn't just hear there weren't just murmurings, I think. He, no, he saw. Okay, He saw Jesus, verse 29, behold. I'll unpack what that word means. The Greek word, idu, behold the Lamb of God. Verse 31, I came baptizing with water, John the Baptist said, that he might be revealed to Israel, that he might be seen. That's what the word means. Verse 32, and John bore witness. Verse 32 again, I saw Verse 33, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain. Verse 34, and I have seen. Verse 34 again, and I have borne witness. That's a lot of words that have to do with witnessing something, seeing something, bearing witness, testifying of something. Why? Why that emphasis? Why the emphasis on sight and testimony, and why is it so significant? Why take the time to point this out for us? John, who wrote this gospel, wants us to see that the events of the gospel, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, happened in time and space. They really happened. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus really happened. These events were revealed. They were witnessed John is saying, behold these things and believe. That's the title of our series. Behold these things and what? Believe. Now, what do we learn in our passage? There's three things. Three things that we'll be looking at from our text. Every point is derived from a verse or verses. That is expositional preaching. Preaching the text. What does the text say? What does it teach us? Three things. The call. 
Number two, the reason. And number three, the promise. We have the call, the reason, and the promise. Let's start number one with the call. What is the call of our text? Behold the Lamb of God. That's the call. That's, that's what the text is calling us to do. Behold, see, fix your attention on who? The Lamb of God. Who's that? It's Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. Verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, do the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Wow. What an introduction. <laughs> Man. Behold, he's walking up. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, the verb to behold comes from the Greek word. Everybody say it. Edu. That was good. Edu. Now, this is what it means. The verb edu means to direct your attention on something. To pay extra careful attention. It's, it's this idea of don't miss it. Look. See it with me. Fix your eyes on this. The word itself is a marker of strong emphasis. John the Baptist is saying, here it is, look, listen, and pay close attention to Jesus. Don't miss him. Don't miss him. Don't miss him. Again, as we saw last week, this was at the heart of John's ministry. Not me, but but him. He wanted everyone, John the Baptist wanted everyone to fix their gaze on Christ. Now, what do we see in our passage? Step back a little bit. This is cool. This is good. John the Baptist is calling attention to Jesus. That's obvious. It's out the gate. Verse 29, behold, the Lamb of God. The Spirit is calling attention to Jesus at his baptism. Who descends upon the Son of God at his baptism? Calling attention to Jesus. Who is it? It's the Spirit. And you're thinking, okay, wow. I mean, we got, we got John the Baptist. We got the Spirit. Is that it, Chris? We have John, the beloved disciple. In writing his gospel, he is calling attention to who? To Jesus. What is the message of our passage? Behold, fix your gaze upon. Don't miss. Pay attention to the Son of God. Now, why? Okay, here it is. Why? Why behold the Son of God? Why? Why? John wanted everyone to see what he saw. And what is that? What did John see? Here's the reason. Number two. Here's the reason he's worthy. Why behold him? Because he's what? what did, I mean, were you singing this morning or were you just moving your mouth? What did we sing about this morning? He's what? I hope you were moved. He's worthy. Jesus is worthy. Why behold him? Why fix our attention upon him? Because he's worthy. Can I read verses 29 to 34? Thank you. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes one who ranks before me, because he was before me. Well, that's strange. We've heard that already. John's older than Jesus. We'll get to that. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, 
He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is He. This is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I've seen and I've borne witness that this is the Son of God. Man, that's weighty. (laughs) This represents, those verses, this section represents the meat of our path. I hope you're hungry. About to get a lot of meat. Hope you're carnivore. If I tell someone to look to Jesus, they may quickly respond with the question, why? Why should I? I'm constantly calling people to look to Jesus. And oftentimes I'm met with the response, why? Why follow him? Why give him my life? Why trust in him? Why come under his word? Why? You know what I say? Because he's worthy. And that's the dominant theme of our passage. If you have ears to hear, you'll hear it. And we even saw this last week with John the Baptist. I mean, what did John say? I don't think he's being hyperbolic. I don't think he's exact. I think he really means, I'm not even worthy to stoop down and untie his sandals. That job was for the servant, the lowest of the low in the household. John's saying, I'm not even worthy to do that because he is most what? He's most worthy. Wow. May we have that attitude towards Christ. Amen? We should pray for that. This is what we find in verses 29 to 34. Accolade after accolade is heaped upon Jesus. Here we find these propositions. Were you listening? These propositions, these grand statements of truth. Here we find doctrine. Do not allow doctrine to be a dirty word. It's a wonderful word. It's the content of our faith. Amen? If you don't like doctrine, you're not going to like the pastoral epistles. It's just a side note. John wants us to behold certain things about Jesus. What are they? Now, before we start in on verse 29, and I'm just going to move carefully through verses 29 to 34, can I back up to verse 1 of chapter 1? You know, John's been doing this since the beginning. He's been laying out these propositions about Jesus, showing us who he is and that he is most what? He's most worthy. Notice how John begins his gospel. In John 1.1, Jesus is declared to be the what? In the beginning was the, the Word. The ultimate revelation of God. The one through whom all life has come into being. Out the gate, John declares Jesus is God. He's the creator. He's the ultimate revealer of God. Whoa, is that doctrine? Yes, (laughs) let's go to verse 4. In Jesus is life. That was our memory verse. Do you want life? Eternal? Who's it found in? Jesus. Verse 5. And in verse 5, we learn that the darkness is no match for Jesus who is the light. He's the light. And guess what? The darkness is no match for him. That's just verses 1 to 5. Can I keep going? Thank you. Verse 12. Those who, if you receive Jesus by faith, you're adopted into God's family. You become a child of God through Christ. If you want to be a part of God's family, there's no greater honor. Who can make that happen? Who has made that possible? Jesus. Verse 14, Jesus came to reveal the glory of God. If you want to behold the glory of God, behold who? Behold Jesus. I mean, do you feel the weight of this already? 
Verse 18, Jesus came to make God known. And then verse 23, Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. The whole point of these opening verses is to bring to light the glory, the beauty, and the supremacy of Jesus so that we might behold him. That's what John's doing. He is worthy to behold, so behold him. And don't stop beholding him. Continue to behold him. In John 1, 1 1-28, John, the beloved disciple, is essentially saying, Behold Jesus. And then we get to our text. And John the Baptist exclaims, Behold the Lamb of God. And then, at Jesus' baptism, the activity of the Holy Spirit exclaims, Behold the King. Everything happening in our passage is meant to draw our attention to who? To Jesus. Now, let's get to our passage. And let's look at what our passage teaches us about Jesus, namely his supreme worth. Why is Jesus worthy? In these verses, 29 to 34, we find Jesus' incredible pedigree. And I want to carefully examine these things together, if you'll permit me. The first thing is this. What does John the Baptist exclaim about Jesus out the gate? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away what? Sin of the world. That's incredible. That's incredible. The language of Lamb of God, when you you hear that language of a lamb, where does your thinking go? Probably the Old Testament in the sacrificial system, right? Under the Old Covenant, lambs were... They were killed. They were sacrificed as a substitute in place of God's people. But more specifically, our minds should wander to Exodus. And especially what? The Passover, which we'll talk about. The language of the world who takes away the sin of the... Of the what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world... The language of the world brings to light the scope of Jesus' saving work. Now, make this correlation with me. This is really good. He came not just for one particular people group, but for the nations. Jesus came for the world. And the grand scope of his work reveals the grand scope of the power of the worker, Jesus. What he did, he did for the world. Whoa! He did it for the world. Wow! (laughs) What about the language of takes away? He takes away. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the word arrow, and so if you're shooting an arrow, it's going away from you. That's just a little helpful reminder. As one scholar notes, it carries the idea of bearing off, getting rid of, carrying away, far away. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, our sacrificial substitution, bore the penalty of not his sin, but whose sin? Our sin in himself, appeasing, satisfying the wrath of God and making a way for sinners like us to be brought near, brought back into fellowship with God. He carried away, Jesus, as the Lamb of God, he carried away what? The punishment of our sin, the punishment that our sin deserved. Surely John had Isaiah 53 verse 5 in mind when he announced, Behold, the Lamb of God 
who takes away the sin of the world. What's Isaiah 53, 5? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment or the chastisement that brings us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. And not only Isaiah, but Exodus 12, where we read about what? The Passover lamb. Let me give you some context. God sends a series of plagues to judge the Egyptians for their idolatry, their refusal to listen to God's word. Is true? And what's the final plague? It's the death of the firstborn. It's heavy, I know. But what does he tell Israel? Take a lamb without blemish, kill it. Take the blood, dab it over the doorpost. And what's going to happen when the destroying angel comes? He's going to what? Pass over. He's going to see the blood, the sacrifice, the substitute. Who is the greater Passover lamb? Jesus. That's what John wants us to see. He is the sinless substitute who died in our place to rescue us from God's wrath. And not only that, so that's the first thing we see. Again, why is he worthy? Our text says he's the Lamb of God, the ultimate sacrifice who died in whose place? Our place. Oh, but then we read of his eternal nature. That's so good. His pre-existence, his preeminence. John says, um, this is John the Baptist, a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Who has always been? Who has always been with the Father? Jesus. Co-eternal with the Father. He's God. Now the next one I'm really excited about. He's marked by the Spirit. What happens at Jesus' baptism? Who comes down to rest and remain upon him? In the form of a dove, the the Spirit. Now, why does that matter? John, kind of in retrospect, says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven and remain on him. Cool. I mean, that's got to be important, but oh, if you don't know the Old Testament, you're going to miss it. Can I read Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 61? Give you some context. Again, The New Testament without the Old Testament is simply happenings. The New Testament with the Old Testament is fulfillment. It's fulfillment. It's promise and fulfillment. Now listen to this. Isaiah 42.1 Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Okay, so how are we going to recognize this coming Savior? Who's going to come upon him? The Spirit. Okay, you got that. Isaiah 61, verse 1. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. I have put my Spirit upon him. Wait a minute. So Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61 talk about this coming Savior, and how is he going to be recognized? By the the Spirit. Now, why is that important? There was a king In 1 Samuel 16, and he's anointed by Samuel, and the Spirit rushes upon him. Who was that? That's King David. That's David, right? What does Messiah mean? Anointed one. What's promised in Isaiah? You'll know the king because who's going to come upon him? Spirit. Don't raise your hand. But who's ever been on a blind date? Okay, imagine this. Imagine your best friend... Guys, you're single, you're a single guy, 
and your best friend says, hey, my wife has this friend. She lives in Pennsylvania, Kentucky, I don't know. She's coming to visit. And guess what? She wants to meet you. She loves the Lord. She's beautiful. This is before Facebook, before smartphones. There's no way to know what she looks like. And you just say, okay, I trust you. I trust your wife. You guys love the Lord. You say she loves the Lord. She's beautiful. Okay, I'll meet her. All right, y'all going to meet at where? Texas Roadhouse. Good. Man from my own heart. We're going to meet at Texas Roadhouse. Well, how am I going to know? And your friend and his wife say, okay, well, she's going to be wearing blue jeans, a blue sweater. You can tell I'm not good with dressing. Is that a fashion faux pas? I don't know. Uh, blue jeans, blue sweater, long brown hair, and a yellow bow. So you're sitting there, you get there early just to smell the rolls and the butter. <laughs> That's what I do. Hey, Haley, will you meet me after work with the kids at Texas Roadhouse? How long have you been here? An hour. Just, I have like four empty baskets in my lap. Appetizer. Anyways, you're waiting and you're waiting and the time comes and the door opens and in walks... Blue jeans, blue sweater, long brown hair, yellow bow. What are you thinking? She's here. That's her. That's what we see at the baptism of Jesus. You'll know the king when he comes because the spirit is going to descend upon him and remain. The baptism of Jesus represents that aha moment. The king has arrived. He's finally here. Not only... Not only would he be anointed by the Spirit, but he would what? He would give the Spirit. And that's the next thing. He will baptize with the Holy Spirit. John says, I came to baptize with water, but the one who comes after me will baptize with the, with the Spirit. Now, not only would the king to come have the Spirit, be marked by the Spirit, but he would give the Spirit. Now, why is that important? This language recalls numerous Old Testament promises related to the New Covenant, the Messiah, and the time of salvation. Ezekiel 36, 25-27. According to numerous other Old Testament passages, Joel 2, Isaiah 32, the Spirit would be poured out on all peoples in the last days, the day of salvation. And we're going to come back to this. The last thing I want us to look at, why behold Jesus? Because he's worthy. Where do we see that in our passage? Lastly, he's the Son of God, verse 34. And I've seen and I've borne witness that this is the Son of God. This title speaks to Jesus' identity as Messiah. Psalm 2. Psalm 2, the one that would come from David's line. He'd be a Son of God. But also John 20, 31. This is the purpose statement in John's gospel. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Okay, so Christ and Son of God are in opposition. It's the same thing. Therefore, friends, what? Behold him. Behold. We can't forget these things, these grandiose truths about Jesus. Why behold him? Let's summarize. Why behold him? Because he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Does that make him worthy? He's the promised king. 
marked by the Holy Spirit. Now again, if you read Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 61 and the surrounding passages, it talks about a suffering servant, one who's going to suffer for our salvation. How will you recognize this suffering servant, this Savior King? Because he'll have the the Spirit. He's the promised King marked out by the Holy Spirit at his baptism. He's the one who gives the Spirit of God to the people of God. He's the Son of God, the promised Messiah. That title, Son of God, also means he's the eternal Son of God. He's divine. Surely, surely there is no one more worthy of our attention and our allegiance than who? Than Jesus. Therefore, friends, what should we do? We should behold him. Fix your gaze upon him. Look to him. See him. If we step back, what we'll find in John's gospel is that it's framed, the entire gospel is framed, it begins and ends with the title, Son of God. This is what John wants us to get about Jesus. He wants us to behold and to see that Jesus is the Son of God, the promised King, the eternal Son of God, God in the flesh. Jesus is the God King. This is what John wants us to behold, and this is what John wants us to believe. And those who believe this truth are promised what? Eternal what? Life. All right, so... The third thing, number three, the promise. According to John, what would this Jesus do? What would he do? The promise he gives the Spirit. Verse 33, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Why is this important? What stands out about this promise? It reveals both Jesus' identity and the reality of the time. So think identity, who he is, and the time. What time is it? Don't look at your, I'm not saying look at your clocks. Don't do that. But the fact that the Spirit's going to be poured out tells us what time it is. It's the time of salvation, the time promised in the Old Testament. Now, if you read Ezekiel 36, 27, it says, And I, the Lord, will put my Spirit on you. And I'll move you to walk in my ways and be careful to keep my statutes. The Lord will give the Spirit, according to Ezekiel 36, 27. According to John's testimony, Jesus will give the Spirit. Jesus is? Okay, so it's promised the Lord's going to give the Spirit. According to John, Jesus is going to give the Spirit. Jesus is? He's Lord. He's Lord. Furthermore, the outpouring of the Spirit is associated with the age of salvation. John's words reveal that the age of salvation has dawned. It's come, and it's come in who? Jesus. And here, oh, this is worth mentioning. What's the big theme in John? The new exodus. As God had rescued in the past, he was going to do again. As he delivered his people in the past, he was going to do it again. Who's active during the first exodus? And it's really behind the scenes. You've got to read the Psalms. There's a word in Hebrew, it's ruach. It means spirit, not Rudolph. I thought someone said that. No, it's ruach. It means spirit. The wind blows. The sea parted. Who's at work during the first exodus? The spirit of God. Who's going to be at work 
during the new exodus? Who shows up at Jesus' baptism? Who does John say, I baptize with water, but one comes after me who's going to baptize with the, the Spirit? What do we see in Jesus? The time of new exodus has arrived. Let me finish with some application. Oh, John Owen said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. How does beholding Jesus aid us in our Christian walk day to day? Is beholding Jesus kind of a one-time thing we do and then we're saved and we're good and we can just kind of go on with our merry lives? No, it's something we're called to do how often? Daily, regularly, constantly. Here's the point in your notes. There is no killing sin and there is no sanctification. Sanctification is a big word that means becoming more like Christ. It's a process whereby the Spirit of God works through the Word of God to make the people of God more like the Son of God. Okay? Sanctification is that process where we become more like Jesus. There's no killing sin, and there's no sanctification without beholding Jesus. Killing sin begins with beholding Jesus, the one who came to take away sin. Christ's primary vocation involved dealing with sin and taking it away. How foolish to think that we have any hope of killing sin We engage in sin killing when we look away from sin and look to who? Christ. Because everything pales in light of who? Jesus. His beauty, his goodness, his satisfying glory. It's greater than all else. Jesus is greater than our sin. Lust cannot satisfy. Pornography cannot satisfy. Pride cannot satisfy gossip, cannot satisfy revenge, cannot satisfy wealth, cannot satisfy your job, cannot satisfy only who? Only Christ. You know, Dane Ortland, he writes, killing sin is a strange battle because it happens by looking away from the sin. You think, I mean, again, I'm a bow hunter. If I'm going to kill something, I better be looking at it. And watch this, boys. That's not going to work. I got to be. But killing sin, it works the opposite way. You look away from the thing you're trying to kill. Well, then where should you be looking? Listen to what he says. By looking away, Ortland says, I don't mean emptying our minds and trying to create a mental vacuum. I mean looking at Jesus Christ. Let me uh, mention Owen again. I love Owen. He spoke, this is such a strange phrase, the Puritans. It was a different time, but he spoke of, and I'll translate, the liking of Jesus because of his excellency. You're going to grow in your affections, your love for Christ, the more you behold his excellency. And where do you behold that, my friends? In the word of God. Sorry, I scared some. That's why you don't sleep in church. Come on, man. Let me, let me just, I'm almost done, but we got to hear this. This could be the most important thing you hear. What we've learned about Jesus in our passage makes our sin look utterly ridiculous. Amen? These things, these truths, these theological propositions, He's the Lamb of God, He's the Son of God, He's the promised King, help to fuel our fight against what? 
against sin. These things work to suffocate sin in our lives. When we behold Jesus and see that he is Savior, he's Lord, and he's King, the one who laid down his life for sinners like us, we then see how foolish, how unimpressive our sin is compared to him. Why would we give that time over Jesus? Can that sin satisfy you? Can it save you? Can it give your life meaning? Can it give your life eternal hope? No, but who can? So fix your eyes on who? Christ. You know, when we sin, what are we doing? I bet you've never thought of it this way. When you sin, when I sin, what are we doing? We're lapsing into a lie. Man, what are you talking? Call me a liar? Yeah. When you sin, when I sin, we're lying. Actually, we're buying into a lie. We're believing a lie. I'll give you one worse than that. Ooh, it's like double amplification. I won't do that again. When we sin, we're buying into a lie and we're momentarily calling Jesus a liar. How? Recall John 6.35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That sounds good. Jesus is saying, I will satisfy you spiritually forever. Jesus is saying, come to me, believe in me, look to me, for I can satisfy. When we give in to sin, we fail to look to Jesus and believe Jesus. We're looking for satisfaction elsewhere. Okay, who's ever had to walk to work? You can raise your hand this time. Michael, you have. Okay, imagine having a 15-mile walk to work. One way, 15 miles. And you do this for 10 years. 15 miles there, 15 miles back. You're pounding the pavement. You have the calves of a Samoan warrior. But then one day, someone, because they're kind, offers to give you a vehicle. It's dependable. It works. And guess what you no longer have to do? You no longer have to walk to work. What a blessing. But then all of a sudden, this person who's been gifted a, a vehicle, a, a reliable vehicle, puts it away. Doesn't sell it to get money. He just stops using it. Keeps walking. What would you say about this person? Strange. The problem is, walking still works, right? The, the analogy breaks down a little bit because you can still get to work by walking. Sin, on the other hand, is like trying to fly to the moon in a matchbox car. Will it ever happen? Of course not. It'll never work because sin won't work. It will never satisfy or fulfill. It can't. Only Jesus. So behold Jesus. Now, how do we do that? Let's end with that. How do we behold Jesus? We kill sin and are sanctified by beholding Jesus where? Where? In the Word of God. Where do we go to behold Jesus, the Word, the Bible? Because the Word, the Word calls our attention to who? To Christ. One brother says, there's no special technique to mortifying sin. You simply open your Bible and you let God surprise you each day with the wonder of His love, proven in Christ and experienced in the Spirit. You know, if you recall Luke 24, twice Jesus says, all the scripture, it all points to me. 
It all bears witness to me. That's Luke 24, 27, Luke 24, 44 to 45. Where's Jesus found? He's found in the Word from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation. There is no, everybody say no. Good. Okay, so there's no beholding the Son of God without the, without the Word of God. This means that in order to be consistently killing sin, we must consistently be reading and studying and memorizing God's Word so that we are consistently beholding who? Jesus. There's no killing sin without beholding the King. Attempting to kill sin without the word is like going into battle without the sword. And what's going to happen? You're going to die. You're going to die. It's a death sentence. Be equipped to behold. Friends, look at me. Be equipped to behold. And to be equipped, where do you got to be? In the word. Get a Bible. Get a plan. Get accountability. Talk to any of the pastors at our central Bible study. I told these guys, I said, listen, you got to be in the Word. If y'all want to fight sin, you got to be in the Word. I brought them a plan. It's a, it's a chapter a day, but it shows them how to read the Bible. These are high school boys. If high school boys, if moms and dads, if grandparents are going to kill sin, where do we have to be? we got to be in the Word. Oh, there's so much more to say. How does this work? How does this work? Me and with this. Can I quote John Owen one more time? He's so helpful. I think he is. I don't know what he's saying. <laughs> he says, the Spirit alone reveals, so the Spirit alone reveals unto us the fullness of Christ for our relief. Okay, so the Spirit alone reveals the fullness of Christ for our relief. Yes, but where? Where does the Spirit reveal the fullness of Christ? Where, friends? The? The Word. Where does the Spirit work? The Word. There is simply no walking by the Spirit, nor is there any putting to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit without the what? Without the Word. Try driving a vehicle without gas or oil. What's going to happen? A whole lot of nothing. Try walking by the Spirit... And putting to death the deeds of the flesh without the word, and what's going to happen? Nothing. It doesn't work because the Spirit of God works through the Word of God to make the people of God more like the the Son of God. The Spirit enables us, Christians, to understand the Word, to see Christ in the Word, and the Spirit empowers us to obey the Word. Amen? Finally, a word for unbelievers. If you're not a Christian, if you've not trusted in Jesus, please hear me out. If you wish to know God, if you wish to know peace, if you wish to know joy, then you must behold, you must look to who? Jesus. Look away from your sin, which cannot satisfy, but will only lead to eternal destruction. And look to who? Look to Jesus, the one who died to save sinners. Behold Jesus and believe in Jesus. Christians, same thing. Behold Jesus and believe in Jesus. And where do we go to behold him? How do we kill sin? 
by beholding the Son of God and the Word of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for your Word, for your truth. I pray that as a, a church family, that together, when we gather every Lord's Day, when we gather for home group, when we gather for one-on-one Bible studies, when we gather with our spouse and our children, that we would gather to behold Christ in the Word. And I pray as we behold Christ in the Word, our beautiful Savior in the Word, that by the Spirit we become more like Him, that we put sin to death, that we would see that Jesus is most worthy. We thank you for that truth and that reminder today. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.